welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. A lot has been written about the legal challenges facing athletes in this new world of names, images, and likenesses. But my question today is, do campus employees also face legal problems as well if they make recommendations to athletes about what to do and how to do it? If that thought has crossed your mind, you are not alone. Today, we're joined by former Vanderbilt University General Counsel, Audrey Anderson. She is a current partner at Bass, Berry and Sims Law Firm, and she's going to discuss these issues as well as other topics, including boosters and names, images and likenesses, the role that that line is getting blurred awfully quickly, the university marks and intellectual property debates, uh, coaches offering suggested names, image and likenesses opportunities to athletes and the problems that that might create, and finally, sideline access for athletes marketing teams. Audrey, welcome back to the podcast. So glad to have you back with us. Happy to be here, Karen. So today we want to talk a little bit about the perspective of the general counsel living in this names, images, and likenesses era, and to some degree, all of the changes and the pressures that are going to be placed on university employees to try to navigate this particular area. So My audience, again, is mostly senior leaders in higher education. And I guess what I'd ask you to give us to start is, what's your basic guidance on establishing institutional guidelines in the names, images, and likenesses era? Is is more guidelines better, are more guidelines better, or is less better because it leaves the institution with more flexibility? Yeah, I think that, you know, this is certainly a challenging time for leadership on campuses that have responsibility for student athletics. And so on any campus, you first have to be really clear on what are your state law regulations. You know, the NCAA's guidance is relatively light and permissive and is very much, their interim guidance is very much relying on state laws to provide any kind of limits. So the first thing you have to do is really know what your state law is. Then I think um, that the next trick that there's going to be to all of this is this extent to which different athletic conferences decide that they're going to try to regulate name, image, and likeness. Although the, the NCAA would run into Um, antitrust and other problems, it's possible that some conferences might try to put some guidance into place that would put some limits. So then once you know what those kind of parameters are for you, then the institution has to figure out what it wants to do. Um, There's still moving pieces uh, because especially for a public institution, some of the state laws um, allow limits to be put on speech based on its substance. For example, some of the state laws say that an institution can um, limit endorsement opportunities uh, for student athletes for alcohol or tobacco or adult entertainment things. I don't know that those kind of limits will stand up to a First Amendment challenge if you're at a public institution. 
um, though at a private institution, I think that they will. So um, you have to know that whatever guidance you put in place now, you will almost certainly have to be changing because one of those outside things is gonna change. And for me, that says that right now, um, less better than more detail in your regulations. You're also in a place where you're having to do them quite quickly, uh, or most schools are. Even people who tried to get a head start didn't know what they were shooting at until June 30th with the NCAA, and then the laws go into effect on July 1, which didn't give you a lot of chance to put into place something detailed or nuanced. Um, but I think that where you're gonna need the detail is in telling student athletes just what it is they need to report and how it is they're supposed to report it. So student athletes who are taking advantage of opportunities to commercialize or name image and likeness, when do you expect them to report those opportunities? After a contract is signed, before a contract is signed, once a year, what do they have to, when do they have to report? What do they have to report? And who do they have to report it to? Those things you wanna have details around so there is no question and there's a really crisp step-by-step -step for student athletes so they um, can easily comply with your rules. You know, that reminds me a little bit of a couple things that already happen inside an athletics department on an annual basis. One is uh, many times coaches have to declare their outside income uh, once a year. So there's a standard time of year where you report it and you have a window and you have to get it signed and up to the compliance office. The other one is the standardization of compliance with NCAA rules. I certify that I have uh, not broken any rules. If I have, I've reported them. So there is a procedure for staff and coaches to do this, but really with the athletes, all they've had is their, their annual compliance meeting. So perhaps that's the, the first and best place to at least get a gathering of information, but we don't know if a year once a year is enough. We, we don't know if we want it weekly. We don't know if we want it monthly. I think that that, I think that's going to be really hard. And if you're an institution that's going to um, either because your law requires it or because you just want to, you're going to ask your student athletes to report their contracts. Um, especially because you don't want them to enter into contracts that are in conflict with any endorsement or sponsorship contracts the university has, um, you might need to have them report more regularly if you're going to say, look, you cannot agree to endorse something if your contract is going to be in conflict with, a, with an obligation the university already has to sponsor something. So, so this, this, this is where it gets tricky with the less is more, but more might be less because you just don't know which line you're walking here, correct? Right. So I think, I think you want less detail as to exactly what they can do and more detail with this is how you report. It makes sense. Makes sense. So building on the... Um, 
overlapping areas. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges and opportunities that institutions will have with deciding if athletes can use their institutional marks, school colors, school mascots, uh, certain fonts, those kinds of things. Well, you know, the, the challenge is that universities' um, marks are very, very valuable to them. It's very valuable intellectual property that most universities guard extraordinarily carefully. Once you allow someone who you don't control to use your mark, you don't know how they're gonna use it and it's dangerous. So, um, you know, I, on the other hand, your student, many of the student athletes, their opportunities for sponsorships and endorsements are gonna be a whole lot less valuable if they can't use your mark or your colors because their whole value is, I am, you know, Judy Jones, the center for the university of whatever basketball team. And just as Judy Jones, no, but people might not be quite sure who you are. So I think that that's gonna all be really, really tricky. And I think the way you spelled that out might be right. Schools may make decisions that you can use our colors but not our mark. So it's okay if you're, you know, if 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 you show up in, you know, black and gold if you're a Vanderbilt player, but you can't put Vanderbilt or Commodores on your on your endorsements. Right. 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 And it really is because we're so care universities are so careful about controlling their mark. And especially if you go to my first part, if you're going to put very few restrictions on your student athletes about what they can endorse, you know, very few universities are going to want their mark on alcohol, tobacco, adult entertainment. Um, and lots of other products that at the outset are harder to define, but once it's there, you know, uh, you know, athletic supporters, you know, <laughs> things like that, that, that don't fall into those large categories that some of the state laws have pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw that James Madison actually is allowing their athletes initially to use the marks, which really surprised me. And they're mm. one of the only institutions that at least this week came out and said that. Whether they reverse uh, you know, pro their process, I don't know. But I, I thought that was interesting because that's been one of the tensions for sure. Well, and it's also, now I'm not an intellectual property lawyer, but it's also really, um, it, it raises some interesting issues because you're wanting other people to pay you for your mark. And now all of a sudden you're letting a certain group of your student athletes put that mark on other products for free. So there's some, there'd be some interesting issues that would arise there, assuming that James Madison is going to let it go for free. You know, the opportunity would be that you could say to student athletes, 
okay, if whoever you're sponsoring wants to use our mark, they can reach out to our university office of you know, commercialization or whoever controls your trademark. And we'd be happy to talk to them and you can use our mark for a fee. We don't expect you student athlete to pay it. It would be whoever's endorsing you could pay that. That's where the opportunity could be co-branding where the university still controls the use of its mark. Kind of like licensing it. Exactly. Words, you could set up a group licensing for all your athletes to use your marks only in these certain circumstances. Maybe you create a restriction, but then it allows the, the sponsor to buy to pay for the licensing fee and then the athletes can just go with it, right? That's a great that would be a great idea, Karen. That would be one way that you could definitely allow your student athletes some ability and yet put the guide rails on it and the control and get a little bit of something for the university. Yeah, it makes sense. A lot. Who knows? Makes sense because some of these universities you well know have uh, several hundred years of uh, equity built up in their brand and they want to control it. And I understand that. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about some of these athletes have really been developing almost like in-house marketing teams for, for, for themselves. They might be parents, they might be family friends, they could be um, social media gurus who all want access so they can create content that features that athlete. So that means when they say access, they want, they want to be on the sidelines during the games. They want to be at practices so they can create you know, video content and other events that have traditionally had access controlled by the athletic department personnel. I mean, I'm trying to imagine if I had a, a team of 110 football guys and each of the 110 had their own team. Can you imagine how, how jammed that sideline would be and how chaotic it would be? So what considerations should athletic department folks give across the multiple sports, not just football and basketball, and the facilities, the multiple facilities where people would want access? And of course, coaches' personal preferences regarding this marketing team. Well, that's where I think that institutions have to go to kind of first principles. Why do they have college athletics? It's not for the purpose of student athletes to be able to um, further their brand and market themselves. And so, you know, I, I would suggest that uh, because there's a lot of risk, you know, if you're going to, if you had to be just open season, anybody could come to any practice they wanted to, you all of a sudden have a lot of third parties on your campus in places where you don't have appropriate um, uh, risk management measures in place to take care of them. You don't have ushers, you don't have security, you don't have all of those things that, that universities have in place when there's a large public event. So, you know, I, I would think that you'd want to have something that was appropriate for each sport and um, make sure that each coach was encouraged to provide some opportunity. So maybe it would be that there is, you know, one practice every two weeks or something like that, where we'll have some period of time that we allow people to come take pictures or take come take their video segments. But they might not even do that. They might just say, look, 
you're a football player or you're a basketball player, whatever you are. But our first, our first principles here are that you are doing this activity to as part of your educational experience and to represent the school in athletics and to better yourself um, through athletics and through your education. And that means that it's, it's distracting. It's not appropriate to have all these other people in our buildings, in our facilities, taking away from what should be your focus. So we're not gonna allow, we're not gonna allow outsiders into these areas. And so whatever you do for content, you'll do that on your own time or your people can do it from footage that is readily available to them from other sources. In fact, you bring up a very good point about the footage because there has been uh, some um, department rules that I have seen that have said that any of the footage that the department creates is off limits to the athletes. They have to go out and create their own footage. And that's where I think this tension might exist because who doesn't want to have their their videographer, their personal videographer standing near the end zone when the guy catches the touchdown and, and the, it, that's the exclusive footage. And there's this whole thing of non-fungible tokens and that moment in time that you own that this intellectual property just gets so intense. So I think you're right about the universities need to address this on the front end, but boy, is it complicated. Yeah, you, you just raise a really interesting issue. And again, that's why I think even though, um, you know, I, even, even though student athletes are being given the opportunity to um, make money off of their name, image, and likeness, it doesn't mean that everything has to be re rearranged to put that interest first. Um, I think you're right that some schools might need to rethink the kinds of um, policies they may have right now about we own all of the video footage that we shoot. Um, but that might be another way for some schools to share in some of this revenue. We'll license that to you for a fee. And you'd want to make it a reasonable fee to your own student athletes, but you'd want to license it with particular conditions put on it. Um, as you would to someone else. It's amazing. You, every time you think about this, it, you just can go down so many different uh, rabbit holes if you're not if you're not careful. So, building on that for a second, um, I have seen a lot of uh, folks who work behind the scenes, and I'm talking about athletic communications specialists, video comms folks who are asking, just simply being asked to do more in this situation. The old adage of other duties as assigned is a well-known phrase in athletic department job descriptions. I have concerns about those folks who are being asked to do more, particularly athletic compliance specialists, because they have got to be pulling their hair out right now with trying to understand this new world. How should senior campus leaders guide them in managing their workloads and I just imagine that they're being inundated with questions, texts, phone calls, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How could senior leaders help with that? You know, well, this, this is, I think, a, you know, th this is a problem that all senior leaders face when you're in an area that is um, uh, in a real, uh, facing rapid change and you really don't know where it's going. 
And hasn't that, doesn't that really explain the last year that we've had in all areas with COVID-19? Um, uh, but athletics is really feeling it now because I think that we don't really know what's gonna happen um, with regard to NIL rights, with regard to um, what other um, opportunities student athletes might get in the next few years if more litigation is successful or if the NCAA gets some kind of federal law, that federal law might allow more opportunities for student athletes to commercialize um, or to get um, more revenue than they're getting right now. So I think that um, a senior leader in athletics um, needs to, or a senior leader in university needs to make sure that there is somebody on the athletics staff who is really um, attuned to and equipped to uh, have resources available to them to surge in when necessary. Right now, you'd want to have a person or two who you could put on this and just this for a couple of weeks, mm. at least, to get your system set up, right? Um, to get your policy written, to get your procedures written. And then it's going to be really, again, if you have a really successful entrepreneurial group of student athletes who are cutting a bunch of deals want to look at before they're signed because you want to make sure they don't conflict with any of your sponsorship deals. You're going to need to have a team, at least a couple of people who can look at those quickly and say yes or no. And for most of them, it will be really quick. You know, the sub, the sub shop down the street, that's not going to conflict with any contract we have but any kind of athletic apparel, we're gonna to have to pause on that and look at it a little more carefully because everybody's got a contract with some kind of athletic apparel company. So, you know, you're, it's, I, I really think that somebody, that, that right now for this next year, if you don't have somebody who this is like most of their job, your people are gonna be going crazy. Think about the time of year that this is happening too. July is typically a, a slow month or people try to get away. They've had a very uh, stressful year trying to deal with the pandemic. And then all of a sudden you pile all these new uh, uncertainties on top of them. And I can see some people just saying, you know what, it's too much. I'm going to walk away. And I do worry about that. And, and not only college athletics, but higher education. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and the, that the you know that the you know the ni the timing of all of this with the NCAA interim guidance coming down at the very end of the business day before all the state laws took effect just couldn't have been worse or maybe it made it better because everybody was like well there's no way we can have a policy in place <laughs> by the time the law goes into effect. We'll take a couple of weeks to do it because, you know, nobody can do this overnight. Right, right. Which was basically where everybody was left. Yeah, we lowered our expectations of our own selves because we were like, whatever, right. everybody's in the same boat. Exactly. And then yeah. it was going to take you a couple of weeks. Well, I'll take a couple of weeks for. I mean, it just, it made it all kind of like, I don't know, you know, through the looking glass 
Um, so I know, I mean, I know on every campus, people have been working really hard over the last couple of weeks, but as you said, lots of folks have been off this, you know, the first week in July for the holiday. And so it just gets, it gets really crazy. And the burnout is real. Yeah. People deciding that another industry might be more conducive to having uh, some kind of work-life balance is also um, really a, a real thing. Absolutely. You mentioned briefly about athletes providing full disclosure to the athletic department of their third party proposals or agreements. You, it sounds like you think that's a good idea. Are there any cons for, do, for not doing that? Well, you know, and I think that's one of the things that institutions really have to think about. So um, I don't know that I'm in favor of full disclosure. To the extent that that um, I, I can see a couple of, of, of problems with it. Um, first of all, you just, I just wouldn't want to have that much information um, of people who are competing with each other. So all your student athletes are gonna compete, be competing with each other for deals. The student athletes are bound to be asking questions of people in athletics. Absolutely. Some they shouldn't ask, but they don't know they shouldn't ask. And just, you don't want that information because some of it you shouldn't share. People in athletics shouldn't share and it's better if they just don't have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How much money are they getting? You don't want to know that. You, you don't want to know that. There's no reason for you to know it. The school doesn't want to know how much money they're getting. So the other thing too, that I worry about a little bit, and this isn't so much of a legal question, but more of just a, um, the institution should not be giving advice at all to the student athletes as to, should I enter into this agreement or not? Mm. That's not the, it's not the institution's place. And the more information you're getting about the contract and you say, okay, you have to be really clear that you're not saying good idea, good contract. All you're saying is, you may, there is no institutional impediment to you entering into this contract. And you know, a number of the state laws require institutions to give training to student athletes in brand management. Um, I think they should also be getting training in you know, financial um, management and how to, I hope that that brand management kind of includes making sure you're looking out for yourself and what looks like a good deal may not be a good deal for you. You know, good kind of um, negotiation and those kind of things as well. So I, I would be afraid that, that these students who are students, who are young adults, who, you know, are very vulnerable in some ways, that they're not, um, that they're not looking to you to say, yes, this is great, you go ahead and do it. The institution can't have the responsibility of making those kind of fiduciary decisions for their students. I think that's really important advice for coaches too, because I could see yes. a coach having a very influential opinion uh, to an athlete who then, if things go south with the relationship between the athlete and the coach, the athlete could assume, well, it's because he or she didn't like me signing with XYZ sponsor or that type of thing. 
So yes. advice would be for coaches just to stay out of it. Yes, I, I would say that your coaches should play no role in the in reviewing endorsement or sponsorship deals at all and should have nothing have absolutely nothing to do with it for the reasons that you're that that you're mentioning Karen and also because um it the you also don't want your coach to feel to be at all involved in looking like or being a middleman right. for making the deals right you don't want the the person who owns a sub shop in town or the car dealership to feel like, oh, I'll just go to the coach and say, coach, who's the best person on the team for me to get a sponsorship from? That is just rife with, with problems. So another point for the institution to remind their coaches to step out, step away, even anybody who works with the team, whether it be yes. athletic trainers or media relations specialists, that is not their their job. They need to step away. Right. Now, I don't think many people have talked about that. So I'm really glad that you you brought that up. <clears throat> Another group that hangs around athletes and always seems to be a looming concern for university <laughs> administrators are boosters. boosters. And this is like this is like, a, like a twilight zone for boosters, but but we always wonder about their ability to influence where a recruit or now where a transfer goes to or stays at a particular school. Two questions. How does one identify uh, someone who is a booster in this era, new era of boostering? And is that next to impossible to monitor in this new environment? Yeah, I have to say, Karen, this. I'm still a little perplexed by all of this because under the NCAA's interim rules, it's fine for boosters to give sponsors to, to license NIL rights, but there's still the anti-inducement rules. And so I guess that means that boosters can um, give sponsorships to student athletes who are at the institution already, as long as it's not, you know, as long as it's not contingent on them remaining at that university. Right? I think that, I think that's what that means. I, I you know, I would have thought that they would have said no boosters. Yeah. Yeah. Boosters has always been a little bit squishy anyway, hasn't it? I mean, they define boosters in their rules. I was just looking at that. And I found out I'm a booster because I <laughs> um, buy season tickets to a university's football season and I make a contribution as part of that. So I'm a booster. Yeah. Um, so excited. But, uh, you know, I, you, you are right that it gets that it gets really, really hard. And that's, you know, when I have been thinking about this, I think it's just bound to happen that, that student athletes are going to know that if you go to XYZ University and you are on their starting basketball lineup, you will get a sponsorship from one of these five businesses in town because they always give a sponsorship of X thousand dollars a year to the five starting basketball players. 
I just think that's bound to happen. And, and, you know, change up your sport, however you want to change it, football, basketball, in some towns it might be baseball, you know, where some towns will be hockey, uh, you know, that, that, that just gets to be known because hmm. that just makes your cost of business, your transaction costs go way down if you do it, if you do it that way. <laughs> and then your inducement rules are like out the window, but you haven't done anything to induce any particular person. Right. right. Wow. It just kind of comes with the territory. You know, but this is all, you know, every, I don't know about everybody. I know a lot of people in college athletics are wringing their hands about all this, wringing their hands about the Alston decision. You know, oh my goodness. You know, college athletics is now going to have to be looked at like all other businesses. This is terrible. And, you know, I don't know if you and I have discussed this before. There's already so much, and I know you're one of your last podcasts, there's so much money in college athletics right now. Yeah. And it just means that institutions are going to have to think about how they spend that money differently. And maybe, and, and this is, that's not about the boosters or anything. That's all third party money. But it might just mean that some of it goes, you know, a la Alston, some of it's going to go directly to students in the form of scholarships for graduate programs, rather than in the form of yet a better training facility. Yeah. A better hot tub or cooling tub or yet another athletic trainer. You know, whatever it is, they'll instead say, oh, well, we could put this directly towards a student athlete. Um, I think you're right. I, 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 as you said, I heard that in my last pod, podcast too from my guest then, and that's going to be hard for colleges too because they have contractually obligated themselves to either some of this debt service that they're using to pay off these big, you know, athletic villages, or their long-term contracts that they've issued to new coaching staffs. Um, so that's going to be really tricky for them. But I think you're absolutely right. I think it's redirecting the the, the capital to try to make it a more inclusive environment. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, more inclusive, but also just a more direct benefit to some student athletes, right? It's already the case that if you're a student athlete at uh, the, you know, if you play football at the University of Alabama, your experience is significantly different than if you play football at the University of Delaware. Right, right. It just is. Yeah, yeah. But now maybe it'll be more, it might more directly affect your your own, you know, you personally as an athlete, rather than just, you know, you've gotten that better digs. Yeah, I, I, in some ways, I, I, I don't like to see institutions spending so much money on um, athletic facilities and incurring so much debt. Because, and I, I get that it's, you know, you want to have the biggest and the best, but quite frankly, some of these practice facilities are better than professional teams, you know? That's and it, what I've it, been hearing. Yeah. So it's like, do, do we really need, you know, this, that, and the other? I mean, that's where I think we can make some other decisions. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question because you and I were talking about this before we got on the podcast today. And that's this issue of FOIA requests, which are the Freedom yes. of Information Act. 
their journalists are curious now about these um, agreements that athletes are starting to sign in this early era, era of NIL. And whether those FOIA requests actually fall under the FERPA guidelines, which is the student's right to privacy under federal law. Talk with us a little bit about your perspective on that. What's the argument that could be made? Yeah, so this is only going to apply where a public university requires its student athletes to share its contracts with the public university. So, the, so that, that allows, once the public university has that contract, it becomes a public record that can be asked for by the journalists under the state FOIA laws. However, the university also has that record because they're administering, they can say, an educational program. And it's in their records as part of that student athlete's student record. And anything in, the, in a student's student record is protected by this federal law called FERPA. And you can't release it except for under certain exceptions or if you get the okay from the student. So I could see a public university making the argument, well, yes, we have this document, this contract that our student athlete has with a third party, but it's in his student record. And so that's protected by FERPA. Now, as you and I talked about, it's a, the, the kind of crazy thing to me about that is that most universities have their student athletes sign a very broad waiver of their FERPA protections so that, the, so that the universities can share with the public lots of information about their student athletes that they would not share about other students on their campuses. So for example, we often learn about a student athlete's terrific GPA when they could never otherwise say, Mary Agnes's GPA is 3.93 and she's the president of our knitting club. Um, but they do tell you what the quarterback's GPA is. So that's, but then, and they can only do that because they have that quarterback sign a waiver saying, it's okay with me university if you share stuff out of my student record. So that it's a little interesting to me to see how those FOIA requests will play out going forward, knowing those journalists and how much they're going to want that information, they could very well file a lawsuit to say, no, those records um, aren't protected under FERPA and you have to give us to them. So we might see some litigation about those going forward. I, I absolutely think you're right on that. Now, you mentioned it's public, but private, private universities don't have the same pressure at all. They can decide to or decide to withhold. Correct. Hmm. The public records laws do not apply to private universities. Okay, okay. So as we wrap this up and we think about, again, uh, campus senior leaders who during this summer are trying to get some semblance of a vacation out of the month of July, <laughs> are trying to manage and think about how they can best guide their athletic department or at least support their athletic department, what advice do you have for them? Um, my advice to them is that uh, this is only the first step in what's going to be a number of steps over the coming years. 
And if you haven't already, I would suggest that you get um, some members of your board involved in thinking about what athletics should look like at your institution. Because I think that more changes are coming and coming soon. Different conferences might end up making very different rules for the institution be between each other. So you might have some conferences where student athletes are able to get all kinds of additional benefits beyond a, a scholarship um, and other conferences where they're not allowed to get those kind of benefits. And there may be some juggling between conferences of where institutions want to go. And, you know, it's not with these, the laws around NIL, the states that have put in place NIL laws, you know, have really said you cannot restrict your student athletes from getting, <clears throat> excuse me, compensation for their name, image, and likeness. But all the other things, the institutions get to choose what benefits they give their student athletes. And I'd really encourage senior leaders to not fall into the trap of, well, we have to because we can. Well, no, you have to compete. You're gonna to have to be competing and you have to decide what's important to your institution. Why do you have student athletics? What kind of, a, what kind of competition do you wanna have around student athletics. If you wanna be in the most competitive um, competitions, be the very most competitive, great. What's that gonna take? And how are you gonna do it? And how are you gonna explain it to your stakeholders? And maybe though you don't wanna be in the most competitive conferences and that's okay. And you can explain that too and then put limits on things and that's fine as long as an individual actor. So I think it's take a deep breath. This is not the first step you're going to have to be taking as a leader and as to how athletics looks on your campus. Find somebody really capable to put your NIL policy in place and make it very, be ready to make it flexible because it's going to have to flex. There's going to be more changes and um, be really clear with your student athletes as to what's required of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I so appreciate you, you mentioning that important piece about redefining who, what athletics means to our campus, to our institution at this particular moment in time. Because for so long, we've just sort of blindly chased after whoever the top schools are, not realizing the cost that it's having not only on our athletes who are trying to keep up and trying to compete against a tougher and tougher competition, but also the impact it has on our institution and in trying to pay that price, uh, literally pay that price to try to, try to keep up. And um, uh, not only is, is this moment in time unique in college athletics, but everything that's going on in higher education right now is, is a reset. And it, I think it's appropriate to look at athletics as part of that larger reset. And it's one of the reasons why we're launching this certificate program at the University of Pennsylvania this fall for senior leaders to have these very discussions so that they can take time out of their crazy lives and step back and say, all right, uh, are we gonna continue to chase and continue to feel like we have to spend more and more money? 
or is it time and a place to do a reset for us? And either way, it's a good conversation because it, then you get the feeling that you're buying into what it is today, not what it was 20 years ago. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of courage to do that. Your leadership has to have a lot of courage to, in any area, to say what we're doing might not be right. And maybe we want to compete at a different level in this area. Everybody wants to excel and be the best at everything. And I think that with athletics, you really have to think about why are you doing it on your campus for your students and the other um, stakeholders in your community. And we do know of a few who have decided to do that. We, we know that uh, University of Hartford is making a move in the next couple of years from division one to division three. And initially people were very upset about that, but if they're looking in the longer term placement of their institution inside of their, their, their footprint, it might be the best decision because then they can repurpose some of the money into academics. But exactly. every institution has to make that decision for themselves. Audrey yeah. Anderson, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today. I know you're swamped with your work at Bassberry and Sims, but we really appreciate you spending some time with my listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Always a pleasure. <laughs>